new CBS Monday. Federal agents! Here's where we can see them. NCIS Hawaii is back. Time to set it up! New criminals to catch. Armed robbery, aggravated assault, murder. And new investigations to be solved. These guys were good, but even masters make mistakes. Vanessa Lachey and featuring LL Cool J. Violin Island, you got him. Welcome to paradise. A new NCIS Hawaii, Monday, 10, 9 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hip-hop takes the stand in the new documentary, As We Speak, Rap Music on Trial. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Rap lyrics are playing an increasingly prominent role in criminal cases. Every song, every lyric, every video that you've ever been involved with, they're going to use against you. Follow rap artist Kemba as he explores the weaponization of rap lyrics in the criminal justice system. This artistic expression is a confession. I'm ready. Roll the tape. Watch the eye-opening new documentary, As We Speak, Rap Music on Trial, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. When it is, as Meemaw would say, 70 degrees in central Pennsylvania in the middle of spring, you don't stay in Nashville. You just go on the road to central Pennsylvania, Penn State University. To be frank, we are jam-packed. We are high atop Penn State. As a matter of fact, James Franklin is eating his dinner just off camera. We're on his patio here as he has been gracious enough to allow us to use it. It's Tuesday. It is April 11th, year of our Lord, 2023. And we got a loaded show for you at the end of this show, about the last 30 or so minutes of this show. We will play an extremely in-depth interview that we recorded earlier with James Franklin, Penn State head coach. A ton of stuff that I don't care if you're a Penn State fan or not will fascinate you. I'm talking about the behind-the-scenes stuff that I know a bunch of you wonder about, and you can never get coaches to talk about it on the record. Well, we got one to talk about it on the record. You want to know how many times they talk to their agents per week? You want to know what it's like when your name is in the conversation for another job? You want to know what it's like to try and get something out of your university and maybe in some cases using media and using fan rumors and whatnot to do that he talked about all of it and i'm going to play it for you in full we're not going to clip it we're going to play the whole thing cliff kingsbury's at usc now so there you go that dude's playing four or 5d chess i'm going to talk about that in just a second it's very much a show me year for texas a&m and jimbo fisher we will discuss when is it the right time one of you asked me to fire a head coach versus just being patient with one uh, it's a very delicate balance, and you got to diagnose a lot of things properly, but we'll talk about all that tonight. And as I said, a very, very good, very in-depth interview with James Franklin coming up towards the end of the show. Tulsa, Oklahoma tuned in, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Lancaster, PA, Franklin, Tennessee. appreciate you guys so much. Now, I know that we're doing a live show here Tuesday, and our schedule's kind of been weird lately, but it's been weird because we're doing more shows than we normally would. And I'm telling you ahead of time, we're still going to bring you a Late Kick Extra pod this week. That'll be in your feeds on Thursday morning. We're then going to do another episode of Late Kick Live Thursday night. So if you're just listening on podcast, that'll be in the feed Friday morning. Uh, there is no off-season. I always promised you that, and we continue to deliver on that. Okay, let's dive into the show tonight. I open up the mailbag, and I see all sorts of questions ranging across the spectrum of college football. But one of them in particular that I wanted to get to was this one here. And it has to do with firing head coaches. So the question is, when is it actually time to move on from a head coach? You know, when do you know it's time to move? Sandy Springs, Georgia. That's where that question came from. And it's delicate immunity. It's really delicate because you have to make sure you've properly diagnosed the situation. And um, this is the time of year sometimes where you can get 
both coaches and agents to be a little more forthcoming because the previous cycle is over and the future heated up cycle is still months down the road, right? So you can get them to talk in a little bit more open terms about what happened or what sometimes happens. And here's what you always find out. What you always find out is it comes down to the decision makers, obviously, and it comes down to whether they can properly diagnose the situation. Because sometimes, yeah, you just got fans that are angry about roots that haven't taken hold quick enough in their mind. Think Mike Norvell a couple of years ago. And so, of course, you don't fire Mike Norvell. Right now, there are some people that I think are short-sighted enough to say that about Steve Sarkeesian at Texas. Of course, you're not firing Steve Sarkeesian, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some people out there who, if they had their way on a message board or talk radio or whatnot, uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't some people who wouldn't do that. So how do you know? And there are a few cautionary tales on both sides of the fence about how delicate this whole thing is. So I want you to think about Jim Harbaugh for a second. I got a, I got a buddy who will remain nameless because he has fessed up to how wrong he was. But I got a buddy, uh, Die Hard, cut him open, maize and blue spills out. Die Hard Michigan fan. A couple of years ago, he was ready to move on from Jim Harbaugh. I think if we dove deep enough into his Twitter archives, you would find evidence of him wanting to move on from Jim Harbaugh. And today, he freely admits, not only was I wrong, this could be the pinnacle of Michigan football in my lifetime. We're doing things. We're, we're competing at a level. We are expected to be at a level every year now that we haven't expected to be at for a long, long while. If you are a University of Michigan student right now, for example, uh, has this ever? I don't think this has ever been the case in your lifetime. So what if, what if people got their way back when not a small minority and maybe not a majority, but a large chunk of the Michigan fan base thought it was time to move on from Jim Harbaugh? Remember the COVID year? Remember when they were just abysmal on the field in 2020? And uh, I'll, I, hey, I don't want to throw stones in a glass house because I just openly opine that it may be that time too. That's why I'm not running an athletic department. Now, I think I'm a little more hesitant on this than... And some people are, but even I looked at Michigan and I thought, if you're not recruiting on par with Ohio State, and it doesn't seem like you're developing, because at that point it didn't seem like they were developing on par with Ohio State, how in the world am I supposed to expect you to compete with Ohio State? And I couldn't come up with an answer. Remember, Ohio State was in the process of running off a string of eight wins. Well, they didn't move on from him. Now, I would contend it's the best program, not team, best program in the Big Ten. Margins are razor thin. I had some Buckeye folks push back on me the other day about that. That's fine. Even if you still think you're on top of the Big Ten. The point is, the margin is razor thin. What happens if you move on from him? Because there have been times where Michigan football has moved in the past, and you end up with, like, the Rich Rodriguez era. No one ever sits in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and tells their kids about the Rich Rodriguez era unless they caution them beforehand or it's mentioned in passing in a jokish manner, it is so hard to get hires right. And that's if you got bottomless resources, and that's if you got everything at your disposal. It's still it's so hard to get hires right because there are so few people qualified to lead organizations of that caliber. So Jim Harbaugh is one example. There's another example. I want to take you back because I was, I was front row for this. 2017, Auburn is always wild in and of itself. It's just, it's like its own little unique orbit down there. And Gus Malzahn found himself in the middle of it. No one cried for Gus Malzahn. Gus Malzahn was going to make a lot of money if he stayed. He was going to make a lot more money if he went. But 2017, I'm down at Auburn versus LSU, and it was thought to be a must-win game. 
Some coaches have played in like 27 must-win games, which tells you a little something about how freely that phrase is thrown around. But Gus Malzahn's in an, an alleged must-win game. And he doesn't win it. What does that mean, friends? If he doesn't win it, he's supposed to be fired, right? I'm in the post-game media conference down there. It's a room about half the size of like this corner of a balcony we're on right now. Malzahn's wife is over in the corner. The, the beat writers are just freely speculating, not about whether he'll be fired. That's just a foregone conclusion. They were already talking about who Auburn's going to hire after him. You know the story. They didn't fire him right there. He goes on to beat Georgia, number one in the country. He beats Alabama, number one in the country. They go to the SEC championship game during the lead-up to the SEC championship game. Jimmy Sexton does everything but take the Auburn brass by the shirt and push him up against a wall and say, give us our money. And Auburn did because they had no other choice because the guy was about to play for a, a conference title. Oh, by the way, this was also when the Tennessee coaching search was imploding in on Knoxville. So Auburn looked at that and said, we want no part of a coaching search right now. Think about how many times, if you're even an Auburn fan, how many times in that given year you changed your mind, you, you flip-flop, because you know there's a huge chunk of people who chanted fire Malzahn the same year they chanted extend Malzahn. And that is like, it's moving at the speed of water instead of at the speed of honey. That is the age-old Mimo analogy I always go back to. When you're making decisions of this magnitude, you want to you wanna be that drop of honey on the plate, where when you turn the plate sideways, yes, the honey moves. Gravity has an effect on the drop of honey, but it doesn't move nearly as fast as the drop of water. You could also apply that to the Jeff Goldblum chaos metaphor in the Ford Explorer in Jurassic Park. Not quite apples to apples, but you know what I mean. However, just as much as I'm sitting here telling you, you got to have some patience Sometimes you need to pull the trigger. Sometimes you need to act. And you want to know who a perfect example of needing to have pulled the trigger was? That was Scott Frost this past year. Because as much as I, I cringe when, when programs move on too quickly from a head coach, I also cringe probably harder when they maintain a situation past the point where the well has been poisoned. In other words, if you stick with a head coach, and then you fire him three or four weeks into the following year, there's nothing that you have seen in the three or four weeks that following year that you didn't already know about him at the conclusion of the last year. And so, yeah, we can think what we want to about the head coach, but when I see universities indecisive, and then they all of a sudden decide to make a decision right smack dab in the middle of a season, not even halfway point. Scott Frost was fired, I think, before October got here last year, right? And so it was after week three, yeah. So what does that tell me? You know, and there's, there's another guy out there right now. I don't know how this story will end, but Neil Brown at West Virginia is an example, uh, frankly, of a guy that a lot of people in the coaching industry and in the, the administrative industry believed West Virginia would move on from. I know there were some external dynamics there, new athletic director coming in, and a million moving pieces I know nothing about there. I don't claim to be an insider at West Virginia. I'm just saying... The reason you so infrequently hear me traffic in this and the reason we hardly ever do hot seat segments and I hardly ever call for a guy's job, I don't think I've, Jesse, I don't know how many times I've done that. It's very, very rare and it's usually because a guy has like bumped me in the shoulder in the hallway or something. It's probably not because of his on-field performance. It's because I can't know what I don't know and not to sound douchey, but I probably know more than most people who claim to know. And, and I'm freely telling you I don't know enough. And, and then there's the whole other aspect of not having expertise in the craft. 
I mean, what if I'm at Penn State right now? What if I were given access to walk these halls every day like we have the past two days? Even then, how qualified am I really to sit down? And I'm not saying you, you don't deserve the right to be critical. I'm just saying, when is it wise to be critical versus sitting back and saying, yeah, we're going to let the professionals make that decision. So I know that's a lot of word salad, but it, it really takes a fine balance. It takes good seasoned decision makers in the room. That's why you don't have many 27-year-old ADs out there. You have to have been around the block. You have to observe uh, time or 10. And uh, the answer is there, there is no one blueprint to it because there are no two situations that are exactly the same. Just as much as we talk about that, though, I think the A&M question is the next question, right? So let's just go ahead and get to this other question that we had. Um, by the way. If you're here, if you're a Penn State fan, I probably know we have a bunch of first-time viewers or listeners that are Penn State fans. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, just do me a favor. Since it's free, subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on pod, subscribe to the pod. Uh, we think it's worth it for you, mainly, again, because it's free. All right, let's, let's get to this next question right quick. Anyway, I mentioned Penn State because we have a, a great one-on-one uh, sit-down conversation with James Franklin coming up. Okay, so this question about Jimbo Fisher. This is from Wichita Falls, Texas, and it's simply, hey, what happens to Texas A&M as a football program this year if Bobby and Jimbo can't get the job done? Bobby Petrino, of course, the new offensive coordinator, Jimbo Fisher, head coach there. What happens if they can't get the job done? Well, uh, there will be changes. Point blank. I don't see any way around that. Now, I am assuming something here. I'm assuming that when you say they can't get the job done, that is reminiscent of what they did last year or failed to do last year, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that because it wasn't exactly spelled out. And to be very clear with you, what they failed to do last year is make a bowl game. And that's inexcusable. At a place like Texas A&M, it, it's inexcusable. I don't really even think they would argue that. So let's just say, for argument's sake, let's get really sadistic for a second. This is not a prediction. It's just a hypothetical. We can traffic in those. That's what God invented April for. So let's say the sadistic side of us hits the simulation button, and that's exactly what happens. We got Texas A&M sitting at home in December, having failed to make a bowl game. Uh, to be very clear, if that were to happen, massive changes would come about in College Station. I don't see any way around that. You can toss buyouts at me all you want to. I, I have thought that through. I have talked to enough people with sort of guided knowledge at the forefront of Texas A&M Athletics that I believe, yeah, regardless of, of how big that number is, there would be movement because you can't afford not to. Like you can, you, you can look at one side of that coin and say, oh, imagine, imagine financially how big a hit you take. Well, let me toss an alternative at you. You are now in this scenario, two years, a massive underachiever. You're about to add Texas and Oklahoma to this league. And I'm not quite sure where they're, where they're slotting that pecking order. But if you're back-to-back missing out on bowl games, it'll be ahead of you, as will Kentucky. Just take a random program, South Carolina. They're ahead of Texas A&M in that scenario. You're talking about A&M being well into the bottom half of the league. And then I want you to think about being an investor, whether it be a season ticket holder or a, even a mid-level donor out there, much less a high-level donor. And, and imagine what they ask of you. And the reason I credit these fan bases and I don't get all that upset when they have sky high expectations is because at places like A&M, every time they ask something of you, you give it. So, yeah, it can be a little myopic at times and you can maybe over expect sometimes. But, man, when they ask what they ask of you and you deliver and that fan base delivers, 
I'm I'm not ever gonna I'm not ever gonna wag my finger at A and M fans. <laughs> what am I about to do? Say shame on you guys for expecting eight wins. You ought to expect more than that, and they ought to deliver more than that. So in this in this hypothetical, dangerous though it may be, if that's what we're looking at, in fact, I would ask our Texas A and M brethren down in Bryan, Texas, or San Antonio, or um, Victoria, home of Stone Cold Steve Austin. If that were to happen. I want the most ardent of program guys and program girls, Jimbo Fisher supporters. I want you to tell me with a straight face that you'd be ready to DM me in December and say, let's just, let's give it another year, you know, because, because it would be one thing. And this is what I have to remind myself sometimes. It's one thing if Jimbo Fisher is a young head coach or Jimbo Fisher is new to the program. Neither of those things is the case. Uh, we're we're entering like what is it Jesse six or seven years now he's been there a while been there been there plenty long enough for every aspect of that program to reflect his thumbprint. I always think in terms of thumbprint. There is nothing about Texas A&M football at this point that should not reflect Jimbo Fisher. So then here's the follow up, and here's where it gets really, really interesting. And here's where the weeds start to grow around you pretty quick. If you didn't know any better. Um, which doesn't mean you're ignorant. It just means you've got a life and you can't follow A&M athletics day to day. If you didn't know any better, you'd probably find yourself saying, why is this so hard? Jimbo hires uh, a seasoned, experienced, been around the block play caller and his new offensive coordinator, and he hands over the reins to him. Why doesn't Jimbo Fisher just go act as a CEO? And I'll tell you why. Uh, Jimbo Fisher is not good as a CEO type. And that is not necessarily my opinion because I've never worked for the guy. It is the opinion of plenty of people who have. And it is the opinion of plenty of people, plenty of people closer to that program than I am. Some guys are cut out to be that. Some guys are cut out to go to the donor dinners and to be the front-facing image that you think of when you think of that athletic department, that football program. Some guys are really good at delegating. Jimbo needs this. He needs 47 play sheets in front of him. He needs to be involved heavily in the offense because if he's not, this is not a 29-year-old head coach. Uh, this guy, he has, he has planted his roots. He has solidified his image and his identity as being an offensive coordinator, play caller, now a head coach. But it's, it's almost like you're, you're kind of cutting the umbilical cord in his mind from what he attaches to as an identity. So you can make it sound as easy as you want to. I can promise you, even if things were to go swimmingly this year, put yourself in his shoes for a second. Imagining yourself, as I just described Jimbo Fisher. Scenario A, things go great this year. And the outside world says, well, it only went great once you gave up play calling duties. And then scenario B, it doesn't go well. And we get to about week three or week four. You are then the dad teaching the 15-year-old how to drive, and there's a sharp curve coming up. You're grabbing the wheel. He's going to grab the wheel. It's not as easy as it sounds, trust me to just go be a CEO. For some guys, maybe. For Jimbo Fisher, not. So uh, it's a very long-winded way of saying they can't afford another year. I don't think that's a bold statement at all. They can't afford another year like they just had. What you can afford, especially if you're in that portion of the country because it is literally their home base, is to pay a quick visit to Academy Sports and Outdoors. Uh, maybe you're up in Pennsylvania where we are tonight. Maybe there's not one within, within eye shot. Maybe you can't drive to the nearest street corner and and visit an Academy Sports and Outdoors. They've got internet up here. Hey, Penn State's got about the fastest internet we've used any campus we've been on. I guarantee you I can pull up academy.com here, and I can get anything I want shipped up here. Spring, clearly upon us in central Pennsylvania. 
it's upon you in Missouri and Texas and Georgia and anywhere else. Just make sure before you get out there and, and strain your hamstring and pick up softball, make sure before you get back out on the golf course, make sure before you do whatever it is outdoors, recreationally, whether it's on the grill or whatnot, camping, make sure before you do it, you give our friends at Academy Sports and Outdoors a visit, academy.com. If you can't get there in person, they are our exclusive partner. We don't look like an, an auto race car. We don't have 47 stickers on the side of the show. We got one of them because there is one partner out there that's been by our side nearly from the beginning, and we sincerely appreciate them because, um, you know, we can – don't take this as a degrading sign towards Academy. I'm just trying to get the trash out of the way. Uh, we can do all of this because of them. And for those of you who are OGs, you know that it wasn't too long ago that I was doing this show in a broom closet down in Columbus, Georgia, and uh, now pretty much do whatever we want to because Academy and you have made that happen. Rise and shine, football fans. This is Susanna Fuller from Morning Footy, a podcast part of the CBS Sports Galazzo Network covering the breadth of the global game. Join me, Nico Cantor, Charlie Davies, Alexis Guerreros, and guests every morning for the perfect blend of news, analysis, conversation, and exclusive interviews. If you love soccer, then look no further. We've got you covered for Europe's top five leagues, the W Gold Cup, the Champions League Knockout Stage, CONCACAF Nations League, NWSL, MLS, Transfer News, and much more. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe to Morning Footy. Greetings, Fantasy Warriors. I'm Heath Cummings, your guide to fantasy dominance on FFT Dynasty. Join me this offseason where mock drafts become epic showdowns and every pick shapes your legacy. If, if I was Adam, with the team that he's built, Will Levis makes so much more sense. And that's not all. We're peeling back the curtain on the future with our exclusive 2024 NFL Draft Prospect Profiles. Uncover hidden gems that'll elevate your roster to legendary status. Puka Nakua. After Cooper Cup, we really have no idea who's going to get the targets. Keaton Mitchell of East Carolina. Explosive speed is ridiculous. This isn't just a podcast. It's a playbook for champions. Subscribe to FFT Dynasty now, and together, we'll conquer the fantasy football frontier. Your dynasty journey starts here. All right, we got, we got big news. I mean, I would consider this pretty big news. I'm not talking about the new Big Ten commissioner. Honestly, we thought about adding that to the show. I want to wait until Thursday night show to talk about that with you. I, frankly, I want to, uh, I said frankly way too much tonight. Uh, frankly, I want to ask around the industry a little bit. I'll just leave it at that. There you go. If you care about Big Ten commissionership, the Thursday show will be for you. But, Colin, here's your end point. Cliff Kingsbury's at USC now, not as the head coach necessarily, but we had a lot of questions like how, how much better does Cliff Kingsbury make USC? I kid you not, Jesse just told me to improve my posture off camera. Um, how much better does he make USC? Well, the first question that anyone should ask is, does he coach defense? The answer is uh, no. But it is a nice little cherry on top of a five-story Sunday, And I will also remind you, that there are, there are some guys that when they get fired, you never hear from again. There are other guys when they get fired, it just seems like they fail up and up and up. And Cliff Kingsbury is, is kind of one of those guys right now. I know it wasn't the easiest of situations to handle in Arizona, uh, but that's in his rearview mirror. Let me, let me explain to you what Cliff Kingsbury just did, okay? He gets to live the NFL buyout life. He gets to attach himself to Caleb Williams which is quite literally impossible to have go wrong for yourself. 
he gets to stay there indefinitely because if it's not a one and done, you got Malachi Nelson, one of the top quarterbacks from this past cycle, waiting in the wings. And so then you get to attach yourself to him. You get to operate on the side of the ball that the head coach is invested in at USC. So there's no way offense is going to fail there. Now, they may need to score 55 a game to win indefinitely, but there's no way his side of the ball is going to fail there. And all the while, there will be a market for him that grows. It's just like when guys go and they they sit in a TV studio for a year. Dan Mullen is experiencing this right now. I don't know if Dan Mullen's ever going to coach again. He doesn't have to if he doesn't want to. But did you notice how poorly people talked about Dan Mullen when he first got fired at Florida? Then did you notice how that sort of eased up a little bit once he sounded like a rocket scientist in a TV studio for a year? And if he stays in a TV studio for another couple of years, I will spoil the ending for you. It will continue to make him look smarter and smarter. Well, the only way that you could probably even improve your plight from that vantage point is to live the buyout life and then go coach offense. Uh, for the record, the, the role is offensive senior analyst, which just means go collect your buyout check and come out here in the process and coach some really, really good high-level quarterbacks. Speaking of high-level quarterbacks, Stats and Info compiled a list of all the coaches. Uh, well, the two coaches are Cliff Kingsbury and Lincoln Riley. Cliff Kingsbury and Lincoln Riley. To be clear, these are the guys. These are the quarterbacks on their recently coached resume. You got Case Keenum. You got Johnny Manziel, uh, Baker Mayfield, Pat Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray, Caleb Williams, and like I said, Malachi Nelson waiting in the wings. Stat of the night. In fact, I would, I would say paper-popping stat here. Cliff Kingsbury and Lincoln Riley have combined to either coach and develop. Well, I guess it's, it's either or. It's just, it's, I'm going to clip this later, so let me just restate this. It will the paper pop. Paper pop stat. Cliff Kingsbury and Lincoln Riley have combined to coach and develop four of the last nine Heisman Trophy winners. And you may say to yourself, pretty mind-blowing stat. There were two others named Pat Mahomes and Jalen Hurts who didn't win the Heisman, and they just faced off in the Super Bowl. So I didn't intend for this to be a recruiting infomercial for them tonight, nor do they need it. Uh, but the last two or so minutes made a little bit longer uh, through my error in judgment there. But the last two or so minutes has sounded like that because you can't read these guys' resumes and make it sound like anything other than that. Stack experience. That's what you do. That's all these head coaches try and do at the major programs is you've got, um, you, you know, I'm at Penn State tonight. Manny Diaz is the defensive coordinator here. Manny Diaz got let go at Miami. I thought he, I talked to him today. I said, I thought you were going to go sit out a year. And he said, well, frankly, I didn't know what I was going to do, but this opportunity presented itself, and I jumped right back in, and, and lo and behold, they may have the best defense in the Big Ten this year. It's former head coaching experience that you get to stack on your roster, on your coaching roster, and you can never know. You, I cannot quantify to you how valuable it is that James Franklin has Manny Diaz on his staff. I can't quantify to you in terms of, Points per game or, or wins per season, how valuable it is for Lincoln Riley to have Cliff Kingsbury on his staff. I just know that USC was made better when they added Cliff Kingsbury. That's what I know. All right, let's pop the knuckles. I'm very excited about, well, really a lot of things. We're not that far away from just real-life college football being played. But I promised you guys when we got to 150,000 subs on this YouTube channel, that I was going to bring some guests on. Well, I asked you what you wanted, and you said you wanted some guests. And I, I appreciate when we can get coaches on the show 
And I appreciate when we can bring them on via Zoom or Skype. What I really love is going to them. And we've got a number of these coming up. I'll announce them as really time draws closer. But the first one on the list is I wanted to get up to Penn State. And James Franklin and his entire staff here rolled out the red carpet for us. We've been up here for a couple of days. And we are, like I said, we're right outside his office right now. He is done eating dinner, though. They rolled out the red carpet. I sat down with Coach Franklin yesterday for about 30 minutes. He went really in-depth, not just on his team, but he went really in-depth on a lot of college football behind-the-scenes stuff that, honestly, it's hard to get head coaches to talk about, on the record or off the record. And not only was he willing to talk about it, he was willing to go on the record and talk about it. So without further hesitation, here is our one-on-one sit-down with Penn State head coach James Franklin. The Penn State Speaker Series Spring 2023. This is James Franklin. He is the head coach of Penn State. I wore a white t-shirt the last three years. The trade-off was you come on the show. I appreciate you being a man of your word. Are you ready to just predict a Big Ten championship right now? No, but I, I will say this. Every time you say Pate State, it always kind of, <laughs> is, he, is he plugging Penn State? or uh, No, we're excited about the season, obviously. we got some good things going. Obviously, whenever you end the season the way we did uh, with a really good win in the Rose Bowl against a team i got a ton of respect for, uh, that Utah football team, I think they do it the right way. So that momentum has kind of led us into the offseason got a good number of pieces coming back uh, and still got some some kind of recruits that are still coming in in the summer so hopefully a couple of those guys will be able to help us so there's a lot of excitement but as you know uh, our side of the conference is challenging yeah so uh, we're gonna have to be ready to go starting with uh, West Virginia in week one how do you get I mean when you come out of a Rose Bowl season it doesn't get much better than that but it can get a little better than that so when you self-evaluate it's got to feel like inches instead of miles how did you guys go about diagnosing the program, tweaks you wanted to make? How do you know when to have patience versus when to be aggressive and go after altering something about the program? Yeah, I think in today's day and age, you better be aggressive you know, 24-7. And I think one of the things that we're going to be able to do now uh, after this Rose Bowl win is, is take advantage of some momentum. Uh, one of the things I've been talking about really since coming to Penn State is alignment. And I think for the first time since I've been here, we have true alignment from the chair of the board uh, to the university president and to the athletic director. And that's exciting for me is because the reality is all those little yeses that you get in the offseason, they add up just like all those little no's add up as well. And right now we're getting more yeses than I can ever remember. Um, and to probably to you know most people, I would tell you what the yeses were and it you know, you wouldn't think much of it, but, but they add up. You, you just talked about something that is the bane of some head coaches' existence right now, and that is the no's they get or the yeses they fail to get that the public doesn't really know about. They just they see the product on Saturday, and if it's not good enough, well, we want you to be better, but yet they don't know the mechanisms that go into Sunday through Friday making it happen. I remember a couple of years ago, talking about Penn State, talking about in reference to how Penn State and James Franklin measure up to the Alabamas, to the Georgias, to the Ohio States. And at the time, I remember saying, well, do you know that he has everything those folks have? And it got a really interesting reaction from the Penn State fan base because a lot of them said, you know, you may be right about that. And now I sit here a couple of years later and hear you say, we get yeses more than we ever have before. I imagine there's a lot of fight that has to go on behind the scenes to – 
start to get the ball rolling as fast as it needs to uphill the way those other major programs have it. Yeah, I think that's that's a critical point. And what I've tried to say really since coming to Penn State is if you can do a really good job with the other 364 days of year, uh, the Saturdays should take care of themselves, those, those, those days. Um, but that's easier said than done. And that's when I talk about the alignment, it takes buy-in. Um, it's really hard to get inside the top 25 if you're not there. It's really hard once you get inside the top 25 to get inside the top 15. Once you get inside the top 15, it's really hard to get inside the top 10. But I would say that gap between outside the top 25 and in, or even from 25 to 15, the gap from the top 10 to those top four, I think is a wider gap than any other area, probably one through 31. Um, and that's that's where when you can get those little wins and you're fighting and scratching and clawing um, for that one more recruit or you know whatever it may be that's going to allow you to be more efficient and more successful, um, it's it's challenging and we're we're doing a better job of that right now across the campus. I'm not asking you to ever make someone feel sorry for yourself. I'm not asking you to complain. I'm just asking you point blank. How hard is the off-the-field job of a college football coach? At a place like Penn State, major college football, you're expected to compete at the national level. Do you feel like it's just always been hard, or are there unique challenges today that make it uniquely harder than it has been before? Yeah, I think it's very different. Um, you know, I say to people all the time in today's college football, as an assistant or as a coordinator, um, you, know, you can make a really good living and and still stay true to what you loved about the game uh, and that's coaching ball and that's being with the players and in this role you're doing so many things other than football at most places there's a few places across the country where you don't have to be but um, at most places you, the head coach responsibility you're taking on so many things other than scheme fundamentals and coaching um, and I tell people all the time, you could make an argument right now uh, if you're Manny Diaz um, and you can just be a, a great coordinator and, and coach ball and be around the guys and, and leave all the drama to me. Uh, there's a lot of value in that. And I think if you know, a lot of coaches maybe in, in my seat now, if, if they look back the way things have changed, you know, you're responsible for these kids 24 hours a day. And that didn't used to be the case. Um, I'm responsible for 125 18 to 22 year old males, the most unpredictable group <laughs> of people on the planet, and you're responsible for them 24 hours a day. And then again, at a lot of places, there's so many things that are outside of your control um, that really can impact the job you're doing and how you're able to compete on Saturdays. That, that's where it can be frustrating at times. I've always pictured if I was ever a head coach, I would, I would say a prayer before I went to bed, and I would say another one when I woke up in the morning, just hoping nothing happened overnight. Because of the stuff that sometimes is out of your control, you can have the best culture in the world. You guys have a pretty darn good one here, but ultimately it's on decision-making, and it's on decision-making of guys that you hope you've put in the best position, but ultimately have to put themselves in the best position. I mean, is there, is there ever just random nervousness when you wake up in the morning? Even though you may have confidence in guys, they're still human. Yeah, I'm looking to knock on wood here, to be honest with you. You know, I, I will say this. Being at a place like Penn State helps. Penn State attracts a certain type of kid from a, from a certain type of family. 
Uh, and I think that helps. On top of that, I tell the coaches all the time, let's not get intoxicated by talent and talent alone. You know, we should be recruiting the whole package here. So that helps. I mean, don't get me wrong. Got 125 guys on the roster. We got five knuckleheads. Yeah. But but our knuckleheads are, are different than maybe what some, some other people are dealing with. Not Again, knock on wood. Um, but I'm proud of our guys, of how they go about their business in the classroom and in the community. But it's it's constant. I mean, you got to be talking about these things constantly with your guys because at the end of the day, they're still kids. And I think that's where people get confused sometimes. They see them, and they're six foot five, two hundred ninety five pounds. They look like grown men, but they're they're still just young kids that are still growing and developing. Do you uh, you have time whatsoever to soak in the magnitude of your job? How how few the positions are at your level, and the fact that you got one of the big ones. Well, I think probably early on, you know, obviously, you know, when I left Vanderbilt and came to Penn State, which was hard to do, to be honest with you, um, that magnitude hit. I grew up just outside of Philadelphia. All the buddies I went to college, I went to a teacher's college here in the state of Pennsylvania. So all my buddies are high school coaches and, and teachers throughout the state. So. The magnitude hit because, to be honest with you, I, I said in the press conference when I got the job, this was my dream job. But the reality is, I, I didn't think it was, um, I didn't think it was necessarily attainable. Yeah. I thought it would stay kind of within the family, um, you know, someone that had coached at Penn State, you know, or, or part of that tree. Uh, so I didn't think it was a realistic opportunity. And then when it happens, and I'm being announced as the head coach, and I got my daughters, and at that time they're little teeny things, and my wife, and bunch of my buddies came up for the press conference. Uh, so I think that moment, it kind of hit me. And then I think, you know, there's, there's certain times after the Big Ten Championship in 2016, that was a moment where you, you took a deep breath and, and, and took it all in. And then that night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm fighting to keep my offensive coordinator, Joe Moore, headed. So, <laughs> so they, I mean, literally 2 o'clock in the morning, you know. So it changes quick. And those moments are, are kind of fleeting. And the reality is, just how competitive it is year-round. If you're spending too much time smelling the roses and um, and and kind of taking it all in, then then you're not progressing to build that next that next season and the next team. It's interesting you talk about how at one point for all of us it seemed like that job, the head coach at Penn State, would kind of stay in a circle, and then all of a sudden you're the head coach at Penn State. Because in our world, in the media world. For a long time, it felt that way. And then all of a sudden, you get digital streaming, and it knocks like the Berlin walls of overhead and distribution. Now, so all of a sudden, now anyone theoretically has a path in there. I'm interested because I feel this all the time. When you do break down one of those walls, or you end up being a guy that holds a position, maybe people didn't think someone like you would hold. How, either voluntary or involuntary, do you find yourself to have inspired other people? How often do people tell you, hey, the way you've done things, your path, you may not know it, but it actually sparked me to do this or go this route. Do you ever hear that? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, um, you know, a person of color in this position, you know, that factors in. I think I hear that from a, a lot of young coaches. Um, you know, whether it's someone who's got, you know, a D2 background like I do, Division Two. I mean, you look at my resume, it, it's, it's, it's frightening for some people. I know it scares with a bunch of the coaches around the conference, around the country, when you see Kutztown and <laughs> East Stroudsburg and, um, you know, and then, you know, obviously James Madison and Washington State and then kind of working my way up the ladder at some really cool places and for some really good people. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's, I kind of have an unusual path and an unusual story. So uh, I'm proud of that. Um, I'm proud of my roots and kind of where I've come from. I think it aligns a lot with Penn State because I think this is kind of a blue collar program. So I think that helps. Uh, my values align with Penn State's values. So that's, I, think, I think that's why it's made sense for the last 10 years and, and just signed another 10-year contract. So um, I'm excited about that. You were talking about trying to keep Joe Moorhead at 2 a.m. right after winning a Big Ten championship. If there could ever be a reality show on any one behind-the-scenes aspect, other than maybe recruiting, I think just staff changes, staff hires, if the curtain could ever just be peeled back and people could see that process, how, how wild does that get relative to the perception people have? Because people already think it's wild, but there's, there's no rest. Things have to change, spur of the moment, 20 times on you. How wild is it when you're trying to either keep a guy or you're going after a guy, and it's, it's a really competitive market? I think it's really wild. I, I think people like yourself, I think, kind of really understand what's going on behind the scenes. I think most people don't. Um, you know, it's interesting. You know, as soon as I see that a guy that has a current job and the next job that's after him becomes public, it's almost impossible for that guy to get the job or take the job. Uh, that happened this year. I kind of watch it closely with a coach and he kind of really had to come out at some point. It drug on, his name kind of get kind of get mentioned, and it kind of drug on to the point where the team finally is like, you know, what, what's the deal? Are you are you in or you're not? And and the fans get get tired of it, and the media gets tired of it. And the problem is is I think most guys are good guys and they want to do it the right way. But what people don't understand is sometimes you're put in a very difficult position. Um, and and you want to be honest, but the other thing is sometimes something changes. Yeah. You know, you felt like during the negotiation you were going to get this, you didn't get it, uh, and now that changes the lens on how you're looking at the job. And you know, I try to be as transparent as I possibly can, you know, with the guys here because the other reality is sometimes that conversation is going on to help the players and to help the program because. Maybe this place is resistant to doing some things that they need to do to move the needle, and sometimes this helps. I mean, it's not been all that long ago that the USC job's open, your name's out there, Lincoln Riley ends up being the head coach, but I remember at the time thinking to myself, I don't really care how that turns out for him. It's going to be good because you're either, you're either going to go somewhere where you wanted to go in that scenario, or you're going to get some checks and some boxes maybe that you needed. And I don't know if players are aware of that necessarily or it's not even in their lane, but I just I remember watching that this last time around with you uh, from, from afar down in Nashville, just minding my own business and thinking that's got to be going on behind the scenes. And you pretty much say, yeah, it was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I think what happens to a lot of times, and it, and it obviously depends on the guy, you know, um, and, I, and I know this is probably going to sound weird coming from where I'm sitting, but I think if you're trying to be the highest paid coach in college football or your own conference or those types of things, um, and that's what drives you, then yeah, that's going to be one of the boxes you check. But really for me, uh, it's always been how can I put myself, my family, my team, my coaches uh, in the best position to be successful. And I remember being at, at Vanderbilt, 
with David Williams, who was the athletic director, who I got a ton of respect for. David was like a like a father in some ways professionally to me and passed away a few years ago. But I remember like working with David and, and he was happy that this was happening because things that he knew we needed, it allowed him to go to the board and have conversations. So it was kind of like we were working together with it. And I think, you know, it's a compliment, right? I think it's a compliment to the current coach. It's a compliment to the program. Obviously, the program is healthy and thriving. Um, so, you know, hopefully you're in a position where you can have honest conversations with people and dialogue. But I do think during the season, more times than not, guys are focused on the job. Now, maybe their representatives are having conversations, but you are focused on the job. And I think more times than that, that's an honest answer. I'm, I'm, I could talk to you all day about this because I got fascination about it. One more question about that. So the inner workings, especially during the season, you're completely locked in on the task at hand, but yet there is that outside world, which is why you have a representative 99% of the time, at least you have a representative. How often are, how often are you and maybe an average coach in contact with your representative during the season? Is it a weekly thing? Is it a daily thing? Because I don't think hardly anyone in our audience would have insight into that world. Yeah, I think I think it's like anything else, right? I think every situation is different, and I think you know some coaches and ads have had enough discuss. Excuse me, and 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 agents have had conversations in the off season. Hey, I do not want, I do not want uh, to have these conversations. You manage it, and if it's something where you can't manage it any long, and you got to come to me about something, then we'll do it. Um, but I, I think more times than not. Literally, during the season, you're letting somebody handle that. Now, I think when you get into that bowl season and it's getting later in the year and decisions have to be made, uh, then I think maybe a conversation you know, at least is had. Yeah. Um, but I think more than not, like for myself, I, I want to be laser-focused on the season and I want somebody else handling those conversations. And hopefully those conversations are happening not only with the schools that are calling about you, but with the current administration from where you're at. It, again, if it's, a, if it's a healthy situation. There's a really interesting thing. Anytime I bring up Penn State on the show, it's, it's understood the program's in a really good spot. But there's also this, what I call a Saban warp that has been on the sport for about a decade and a half now to where the perception of success has been totally skewed by a program winning half a dozen national championships, which is unrealistic compared to any other point in history. And I'm very curious if you've felt that, like inside the business of four 11-win seasons, a Big Ten championship, Rose Bowl last year, in another era, maybe just in the early 2000s, that would be looked at as the pinnacle of Penn State football. And internally, it may be looked at that way, but nationally, people look and say, well, yeah, but you haven't done this. Do you, you ever feel that? You ever feel like the era you're competing in has been totally warped in terms of perception? Yeah, and and I think the point you brought up is a good one. I think that's part of kind of the BCS when that started, um, and now obviously the the new system we're in. But you know, I think that's been kind of the challenge, right? I mean, you're talking about New Year's bowl games, which used to be used to be kind of what everybody worried about, and now it's kind of the playoffs or bust, especially if you're at a place that people would consider a top 15 job a blue blood, um, then I do think that's kind of that's the nature of it. That's kind of the, the, the nature of college football. Now, if you're at this type of program, it's competing for a national championship. 
uh, or nothing. And I think that is, I think that is, is really challenging. Um, you know, to me, it's also interesting when you think about when we got this job and, and what the job was like and where the program was at at the time coming in at a very challenging time in Penn State's history. There was talk that the program wouldn't be back until now. You know, people are saying it won't be back for 10 years. Um, so I am proud of that. Um, but I do have really high expectations and standards. So I embrace kind of, you know, th those discussions and those thoughts that, that people are talking about, you know, nationally, but really, to be honest with you, regionally and specifically to the Penn State people. Um, I understand clearly what the expectations and the standards are here, but I think your point is, is a good one and is a valid one. It's changed college football dramatically. We're in what, for lack of a better term, is just considered the NIL era, transfer portal era. Uh, it's a fight that a lot of programs are having internally. Some are haves, some are have-nots. Um, some are haves that need to exhibit it a little bit more. What's the challenge been to maintain roster integrity while also scanning the, the landscape and seeing if there's a Penn State caliber player out there? It's, it's just it's 365 days a year, which recruiting always was. But now the, the, the process of talent acquisition has morphed so much. You probably have people employed in this building in roles that may not have existed even five years ago. Do you not? Yeah, that, that's, that's definitely fair. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I'll, I'll kind of lead with this. The, the, the first thing I think is, is interesting, fascinating, frustrating, is the people that have always been giving money, they were way ahead because all they did was take a, you know, a way that was viewed as illegal under the old NCAA rules, and they just said, look, you, you have a culture of giving already, and we're just going to transfer it now. A culture of giving is really kind. It's a really <laughs> kind vote to put on it. But, but my point is, is literally these people are used to giving right. to the players. Well, you're going to do it, and now you're just going to do it this way. So those programs were way ahead. Um, I would also say programs like Penn State, historical programs, um, I think a lot of them have struggled that you've spent so much time educating your fan base and your donors on what you can do and can't do that it's 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 hard and i think most people start off including myself being uncomfortable with it and then you have to change and it's no different than any other industry right the rules change you better change with them you better embrace the new change you better be bold and aggressive um or you're, you're no longer going to be competitive and you're no longer going to exist. And that's any industry. I assume you talk to several coaches behind the scenes. you got a network of friends just like I would in the media world. Forget about name and names, obviously, but off the record, when this thing first became what it is now, it's, it seems like it sort of was ham-fistedly, Meemaw term, ham-fistedly just thrown down the pike and you guys were told, figure it out. What, what were those conversations like? Well, one of the things that probably frustrates me is people say, well, this has had unforeseen consequences. We didn't know. Yeah, everybody within the business knew exactly where this was going. I think at the end of the day, the NCAA was getting sued in every direction. They knew this was coming. 
Um, that's really what we're going through now. We've kind of dug into the rule book the NCA has and says, okay, what are the rules that we're most at risk for getting sued uh, on? And let's try to get rid of those rules and the rules that, let's be honest, are not enforceable anyway. They're in the rule book, but but nobody can really enforce them. So I think that's what you, you see happening. I, I think at first there was frustration um, within the coaches. I think there's still to this day um, a fear and a reality of a lot of really good coaches in college football that are leaving to go to the NFL. Um, I think that is a, that is a real thing. Um, and I also think there's a, there's a sense now with coaches and athletic directors that we all recognize that some form of collective bargaining agreement or something is inevitable for the sport, that the players are going to get paid. Um, and I think now people would rather that happen um, than what we're living in right now because there's no guardrails. There's no guardrails for the recruits. There's no guardrails for the, the coaches and the administration. Uh, everything's verbal deals. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's in the game's best interest, and I don't think it's in the student-athletes' best interest. And again, I'm on the side that I think the players should be getting paid, so I don't want to be misinterpreted what I'm saying. I just think there's got to be some type of, of guardrails to protect the student-athletes. You, you saw examples of guys signing with a school or yeah. committing to a school because they thought they were going to get X. And the conversations that I've had is a lot of times those, those things aren't panning out the way they thought they would. Well, I had a big fear when this first started out of the term Wild West that gets thrown around a lot, which was, which was apropos, uh, frankly, with the way that this started out. But the more people you talk to on the business side of NIL, and especially at the administrative level, the folks who have started to get their act together, the more I've talked to them, thankfully, I've gained a little confidence over probably the past six months that the direction you're talking about going, the, the collective bargaining, possible, uh, dirty word here, employment status future of players, it, it's, a, it's a terrifying concept for a lot of people. You just mentioned, though, the alternative is probably more terrifying. And, you know, my mind is now we're probably gaining towards an eventual cruising altitude that while it's radically different, the net result of it may not be all that dissimilar than what we had 10 years ago. The tier structure may be strikingly similar. It's just the net result is the players have deeper pockets in the process. Yeah, and there was a bill in California. I think it was like 30% of the of the revenue and things like that. So I think that's what's going to happen. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, most people, whether it's commissioners, ADs, head coaches, I think would embrace that and, and be comfortable with it. At least everybody kind of knows what you're dealing with. You've got, by pretty much every preview magazine culture estimation, a really good team that you're about to feel here. You've got a really good group of players. I don't know if you would call it a team yet. That's what you're building right now in the middle of spring practice. Summer conditioning's coming up, and you'll have fall camp. I know that you guys had a really, really high-level class come in last cycle. You were in the process of putting together one right now. But I'm really interested, when you talk about the amount of captains that walked out the door, and finding the guys that are going to have that C on their chest in this unit, in the 2023 version of Penn State, it doesn't really matter how many stars were next to anyone's name. That's, that's the sort of adhesive and gel between the, the blocks that end up determining whether you're going 9-3 and three or playing meaningful post-New Year's Day football. 
what actually goes into that? Because there's there's a part of it a coach doesn't even control, is there not? That's got to happen in the locker room. Yeah. So that that's probably our biggest challenge, and we spent a lot of time this offseason talking uh, amongst the coaches about this, but also the players uh, from a leadership standpoint. Um, last year, the leadership was as good as I've we've ever had. Um, part of that was fifth-year guys that were returning captains. Some of those were six-year COVID guys. With Sean Clifford, it was his 12th year at Penn State, it felt like. Um, so what I tried to explain to the coaches and tried to explain to the players is in our minds trying to replicate the leadership we had last year. It's not going to look like that. It's going to look different. It's going to sound different. It's going to feel different. Um, that doesn't mean our leadership can't be just as strong or stronger this year, um, but it's going to be different. You're not going to have a Jair Brown Tig. Um, who is one of the more natural leaders that I've ever been around, or a PJ Mustafer, uh, or a Sean Clifford? You know, so it's going to look different, and more people are probably going to have to take responsibility for that and spread it out. But that's probably our biggest challenge. We were an older team last year. We're going to be young and talented this year, um, and we're going to need some of these guys to step up at maybe an earlier you know, stage of their career. I'm going to get you out of here on this. I always love to ask coaches this. What is something that you look back on in your first years as a head coach that you just can't believe? You say, I was so totally wrong on this. I have so evolved on this one thing or this one particular philosophy. Is there anything that immediately comes to mind? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if there's something that jumps out specifically like that. Like right away, my mind goes back to, to Vanderbilt, and I remember... I remember kind of sitting in that building. It's like you got all these plans as, as a head coach of what you're going to do, and then you get there, and you're sitting in the building by yourself, and you're trying to talk to, you know, you're trying to talk to the current staff of who you're going to retain. I remember calling Brent Pry, and you know, he wanted like a farewell tour to say bye to everybody, and and he's like, "When do you need me there?" I'm like, "I need you here tomorrow, like tomorrow." And he's like, well, I can't be there tomorrow. And, and I was like, well, I need you here tomorrow. And, and he goes, hey, you know, by the way, what am I going to make? And then I told him what he's going to make. And he goes, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, but I just think about, you know, I, I think one of the better things that I did taking the Vanderbilt job, and maybe the Vanderbilt job allowed me to do this, is I hired a bunch of people that wanted to be at Vanderbilt and wanted to be with me rather than going out and making the sexy hire. And I think that was one of the most valuable things I did. It was a core group of guys that were there with me, that wanted to be there with me, that weren't already looking for the next job. It wasn't a stepping stone job. And that core group of guys, we stayed together for a long time. I've kind of lost a few, you know, every year over the last 10 years. But um, that's probably one of the better things that I did. Um, but the, thing, the things that kind of jump out in terms I was totally wrong on, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I just... Uh, that doesn't kind of jump out in my mind. It's probably right a good away. thing. Well, I, 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 really good well thing. no, because there's probably a ton of small things that I, that I know I've learned and evolved from over the years. But I don't know if there was that one, you know, dramatic thing that was that was you know, that jumps out. Well, look, this is a really good looking jacket. First off, I think you may be well on your way to getting another good looking one, maybe with a different logo on it this year. James Franklin, head coach, Penn State. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. 
check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount+. Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. I, I, well, first off, I need to mute my laptop. I, I cannot speak highly enough of the willingness to give access that really James Franklin and his entire program have had to us over the past two days. It is always really, really appreciated on our end when programs do that. Uh, we have programs reach out sometimes. We can't get to everyone. I'm going to hit up several between now and the time the fall season kicks off, and you'll see that in due time. But the willingness to be open and also the appreciation on our end that there's the trust factor that you're willing to open the program. It is mutually beneficial, or at least we intend it to be, but I just, I can, I can safely tell you Penn state has done it. Uh, Some of the other programs out there have done it. It's always appreciated on our end. Um, We're happy to help in any way, but also we are, we are immensely grateful that you help us. I've got a ton, a metric ton of behind the scenes stories and observations Many I can't share, but some I can share with you. And the Late Kick Extra podcast that we drop Thursday morning, it'll be in all your podcast feeds. I will put a healthy amount of that there. Um, just again, it's stuff that, of course, is going to be like like crack to you if you're a Penn State fan. But I don't care if you're a Missouri fan. When you get to see the inner workings of a program, let me give you just one quick thing. If you could be around a major college football team when they're gearing up to practice, like I was down in the uh, Penn State weight room, which is immaculate, and I can't show you pictures of it, but it is immaculate. I'm down there doing shoulders today. Of course I am. They're getting ready to practice, and we were talking to a lot of the coaches and players earlier today at at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. They're gearing up for practice, and as that time draws closer and you got clocks all over the building counting down to practice, this is spring now. This is not game week in the fall before they play Michigan. It is so intense. You could not believe how intense it is. I know when you think practice, you think you waltz out there, make sure you stretch, let's get some work in, let's go home. That's that's middle school. At at high level FBS programs in the Big 10 and the SEC Penn State, obviously being one of them, it is it is as intense an atmosphere as you could possibly be around. To be around a major college football practice, every rep counts, everything is scripted to a T. Everything that needs to be done is so clearly articulated throughout this massive building we're in. Everyone is marching to the same beat. Everyone's singing from the same hymnal, as Meemaw would say. So anyway, that, that is for the Late Kick Extra Pod on Thursday morning. We've had a great time here. Folks have treated us spectacularly here in Penn State and State College. i got to fly back to Nashville in the morning, so we've got a whole lot more to do this week before we, uh, we call it a week ourselves. But we're going to call it a night from here. 
Until next time, we got Gelby on the road with us, by the way. We've got another Greg here at Penn State that's helped us out a lot. Producer Jesse, dutifully in tow. Director Colin back home on the ones and twos in Nashville. I'm just Josh Payne, and I thank you so much for watching. Take care. Have a great rest of your evening, and God bless. Yes, Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game full speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. 